Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. is the Church Law Podcast, where you can get practical solutions for today's leaders. I'm your host, Erika Cole, the church attorney. Welcome back to the Church Law Podcast. It's incredible that we're in season two. We couldn't have done it without you. I'm so glad that you've been joining us. Today, we're having another hot topic. It's fraud in the church. Don't think it couldn't happen to you. And I have an awesome guest with me. Her name is Vana Lau. Vana has worked with ministries and churches for more than 20 years. She was a partner with a national CPA firm serving not-for-profit entities through audit, review, tax, and advisory services. And then she held the role of executive vice president for a Christian ministry working to enhance trust in the church and ministry community. She now focuses her time on financial and operational consulting for churches and ministries. She became an editorial advisor for church law and tax in 2009. And now she and I serve together um, as senior editorial advisor, which she joined those ranks in 2020. She earned her bachelor's degree in accounting and her MBA in leadership and human resource management. She's published articles in multiple national publications, as well as co-authored three books. Vana has been inducted into the Church Network's Church Management Hall of Fame, and she is a sought-after conference speaker. Today, again, she's here to share on some recent work she's done on the topic of fraud in church. So welcome to the Church Law Podcast, Vana. Thanks, Erika. I appreciate the opportunity to join you. So glad you're here. So as you've heard, I've shared a bit about your impressive background. Um, Thanks for the great work that you do using your skills to serve churches. We appreciate it. (laughs) I just laugh when I hear that and realize it just means I've been around a long time. (laughs) And thank God for that, right? Amen. <laughs> um, so, Vada, you won't be surprised to hear this, but I got a call from an elder at a medium-sized church who proceeds to share that they found that the treasurer had mishandled church funds. Plus, once it was discovered, leadership didn't want to take any legal action. Um, unfortunately, I've seen many situations similar to this, and I bet you have too. It's extremely disappointing to hear, and I wish that I could say I was surprised, but you're right, I'm not. It is more common than than we would think, and certainly than we want to really be aware of. Mm-hmm. Well, you've been heavily involved in a new nationwide survey of more than 700 church leaders conducted by Church Law and Tax that shows nearly one-third 
of congregations have suffered from some sort of financial misconduct, which is a huge number, obviously. So could you tell us more about the survey and its findings? Absolutely. And the thing that I'm, I guess, pleased is maybe not the right word for, but that I'm thankful for is that we do have this survey, that we have actual data that we can go back to, because those of us who have been around churches a long time recognize this, but we didn't have the hard and fast information that we could go to to say, see, it actually does happen. Um, So this gives us some statistical facts that we can bring to people because sometimes that's what it takes is Mm -hmm. kind of that awareness of, oh, this is real. This does happen. Then we can start to address the, does it happen in my church and, and some of those barriers. But having the survey results definitely will give us the facts that we need to do that. As we transition into talking about some of the results of that survey, it was interesting to see, like you said, really one in three churches that responded had experienced fraud. And I think the most important takeaways from that were it was all budget sizes from small to large and everything in between. It was really dispersed across there. It was all sizes of churches. There were churches under 100. There were churches of 250, churches of 500, churches of 1,000 and mega churches that were included in there, each of those having experienced fraud. So that also was not something that protects us. Oh, we're just a small church of 100. We're okay. That's that's not really true. And the facts now show that. It was all geographic locations too. I have said, you know, sometimes we think, oh, because we live in this part of the country, that type of thing doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And it was literally spread across. So geographic budgets and church size, Arika, it happened across the board. Well, as, as you say, it's disappointing to quantify this information, but people like you and I who've served churches for, you know, over 20 years at this point and, 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 and many others, um, we've seen this happen time after time. And every time I often hear people say, I can't believe it happened to us, or I can't believe this person who we really liked, who was very personable, would do such a thing. And frankly, it's been my experience that these people are often having difficulties of their own. And it's where those challenges meet opportunity that creates this unfortunate situation. Would you agree with that? Or is that what you saw in the survey? I would completely agree with that. You know, in the cases that I've been involved in, and and you probably have been too, the day before it was discovered, you know, the pastor would have trusted, or maybe even in some situations did trust that person with his personal checking account. Like that's how much trust these people have. And I think what I want people to understand is most of the time, these perpetrators aren't sinister individuals. Like they didn't come to the church thinking, oh, easy target. I'm going to defraud this church and that'll be my, you know, my golden ticket. What we found was that it's all types of employees. You know, we kind of categorized it into four categories. But if you even break down those categories and look, it was all ages, it was male and female, it was all positions. But one of the things that I think is interesting was the largest losses that happened were with perpetrators who were male or female, but they were 60 to 60 years or older, and they had been in their role for 20 plus years. Mm. So talk about trust. 
I mean, those are obviously some of our most trusted allies, colleagues, and, and employees. And it just goes to show that those were the ones that had the ability to commit some of these larger frauds. I think that the thing to remember is just what you said, and that is there are different reasons why people do it. And we need to be able to protect the church and protect those individuals from themselves. Yeah. Oftentimes it's something as simple as a family matter. Uh, One of the cases that I knew of early on in my career was a grandmother who was on staff and she had a granddaughter with severe medical needs that mom and dad just couldn't cover. And so grandma started to quote, borrow money to pay for some of those medical needs. And I think, you know, most of us, our heart goes out to a person in that position, right? This, like I said, this wasn't a person that wanted a new boat. This was a person who was trying to care for their granddaughter, but we still have to go about it the right way. That doesn't excuse illegal behavior. So we need to do what we can to identify it, be aware of it, and then really from the church's standpoint, have some protections in place. So Vanna, we've been using this term fraud in church, and I don't want to assume that listeners know exactly what we're referencing. Can you give us a few examples of what you mean and what the survey found in terms of fraud in church? Sure. And fraud is a really broad term. So when we use it within the context of the survey or today's podcast, we're talking about financial fraud. Um, And so a couple examples of that would be inappropriate expenses. That was the most common one that we found in the survey. So people that had used the church credit card for personal expenses or had taken money through the payroll system, maybe they'd you know, upped their pay when they shouldn't have, or they had given themselves an advance and written it off or you know, forged checks. So inappropriate expenses was the most common. And then the second one was stolen contributions. And that's, those are the two that I have most commonly seen over the last 25 years. You know, those contributions coming in, and that can be anything from the volunteers who collect it and never makes it into, you know, the bank or on the staff after the fact and before it's deposited. So stolen contributions and inappropriate expenses. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And it raises the number one question that I ask when I'm made aware of such incidences. And that is, does the church have a financial policy, right? Because it's really within these policies that we address things like making sure that the same person who's collecting other persons, right? That there's not just one person collecting funds and depositing funds, that we have these proper checks and balances and that they're documented and people understand them and that they're followed. So I would ask you, what tips and cautions do you have for churches, given what we now know about fraud in church? A couple of things I would say. One of them is there's kind of in the financial industry, the accounting world, there's this fraud triangle that we talk about. And there are three legs in a triangle, right? So there's opportunity motivation, and rationalization. Opportunity is the only one of those three legs that the church can control. If we are allowing there to be an opportunity for someone to have access to these funds so that they can take them undetected, that's problematic. The other two 
you know, motivation, maybe like I said, the granddaughter that had medical needs, we can't address the motivation itself. That's an external influence. And the rationalization is a person being able to say to themselves, I don't make enough. The church doesn't value me. I'm going to borrow it. They rationalize in their own mind. Again, as the church, we can't control that. So we have to do what we can in that one leg that we control, and that's the opportunity. So internal controls, the other thing I would say is keep in mind as you listen to this podcast that there are multiple ways to accomplish the same thing. So if you think about, oh, well, we have to do this and we don't have enough staff to do it, think about a different way to do it. Because I've always said, even as an auditor, when I would give a management comment letter and say, here's my recommendation, I would sit down with them and say, is that feasible? Because if not, we can probably come up with two or three different ways that we can accomplish the same result, but we can use it within the confines of the resources that you have. So sometimes we have to get creative, right? Because some of our staff are smaller. We've got people running in a lot of different directions and everyone's wearing a lot of hats and has a lot to do. So maybe we use a volunteer to be a second person in part of that process, or maybe we pull someone from another department you know, a few minutes once a week to do a couple of these things. I say that I used to have sympathy for small church staffs. And then I saw some churches that did internal controls really well with two people. And so my sympathy went out the window for everyone else. So I just want to help people now figure out how they can do it. So my encouragement is really sit back, look at it and realize multiple ways to do it. Just get creative. Well, you touched on a few things, several things. Um, One of the things that you touched on and that I also have found is the fact that churches generally don't want to report when these kinds of illegal actions occur. And I fully understand that. I was raised in the church. My parents have been leaders always in the church. My husband's an elder. We've been deeply committed to um, our faith and to the church. So I very well understand the hesitation and the care, frankly, around you know the perpetrator, the care for the perpetrator. But what do you say in those instances where you know maybe a, the church compounds this kind of issue with a failure to report? Well, I would encourage people to start before there's something that happens. Hmm. Have this discussion now because it takes the emotion out of it when there isn't a person involved. So I think that boards and leadership need to discuss what their approach would be if there was fraud that was discovered. Because what you'll find is even in that discussion, you will have from one end of the spectrum to the other. You know, one end being we're believers and we handle this internally and we use the principle of, you know, go to your brother and take someone with you and then take it to the church. Then you'll find people on the other end of the spectrum that are saying, this is illegal. We go to the police immediately. You want to figure that out beforehand, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I encourage people to start having that discussion early on. But when it comes to, you know, an, an actual situation, I have unfortunately always found that whatever the amount is that a person might actually, quote, confess to, in my experience, it has always been greater than that. So many churches will find that people are repentant and sorrowful and tear-filled 
and will say, this is how much I, and let me pay it back. Mm-hmm. Uh, be cautious about that. And keep in mind, they've already lied to you and deceived you once. So don't really quickly and easily accept that and move on. And one of the other things that came out of the survey for me was I have always talked about stewardship. And I think in the church, we always talk about stewardship. And so in this situation for the last two decades, I've thought about it from stewardship, from the perspective of the church and how do you handle that? And it was with this survey and looking at these results that suddenly the light went on for me and I saw that stewardship principle in a broader perspective. And that is we are stewarding kingdom resources. We are not stewarding our church's resources. Mm, That's good. And so we have to look at it from a broader perspective. And if we fail to hand it over to the authorities and what they do with it, is not our responsibility. We don't actually, you know, file charges or do anything like that. That's not on us. But if we don't turn it over and make sure that the right actions are taken, there's every possibility. And it's not uncommon for someone to go to work somewhere else and do this again. And if they do that in another church or another ministry, to me, we have just been poor stewards of kingdom resources. And that was just a new revelation for me out of the survey and and reviewing these results in depth. That's a powerful revelation. And yes, I do concur that that principle of stewardship is really critical and it's broader than the local church. Not to mention in my experience and one of the things I've shared with you know, with churches when I've been brought in for such situations is, you know, people who donate givers are, you know, they want to have the confidence to know that their money is being well stewarded and protected, right? That they're, it's not just going out the window because of um, mishandling. So I think that part of the consideration is also critical. Um, One of the things I saw in a recent article from Church Law and Tax regarding this really interesting survey, it says the failure to prevent or quickly detect financial misconduct exacts heavy tolls on congregations. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity's 2019 study estimates church fraud globally will grow 6% annually and total $80 billion by 2025. $80 billion. So when you talk about kingdom resources and the incredible needs that we see today, that $80 billion could go a long way. Well, 80 billion, if you look at the combined budgets of mission sending organizations, we basically would fund global missions if we were able to redirect those fraud funds into mobilization efforts of missions organizations. So it is a huge number. And I think, Erika, The thing to consider is the results of fraud are so broad. It's not just financial results that are impacted by this. There are a number of just issues that flow out of this. And to me, one of the most important of those is the relational and trust issues Hmm. that result. No, Uh, I think that's well said. You know, you mentioned donors and how do they trust that their funds are being well used if this happens. So when this occurs, now all of a sudden you have staff that are not sure if they can trust each other and staff that aren't sure they can trust volunteers and donors that aren't sure they can trust church leadership. And you know, when you look at some of the silly things that churches split over, 
This is a pretty significant issue, and it's not uncommon for this to have a significant impact on the culture of the church for years after the fact. Wow. Well, Vana, thank you so much for being with us today, for sharing um, your vast knowledge and your experience around this really important church fraud survey. I really appreciate it. And I just want to let listeners know that this podcast is brought to you by Church Law and Tax and is a part of the Christianity Today podcast network. episode is sponsored by Take the Next Call, a six-week live course where I help burnout pastors take the next step toward a life of more joy and contentment so that they can truly serve the Lord with gladness. Learn more at www.takethenextcall.com and feel free to share your comments and questions with me. I plan to read each of them and maybe I'll get to answer your question on an upcoming episode. Reach me at contact at takethenextcall.com. Subscribe to the Church Law Podcast to get each new episode and join us on this journey. This podcast is brought to you by Church Law and Tax, part of Christianity Today's podcast network. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that the host and the publisher are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional person should be sought. Due to the nature of the U.S. legal system, laws and regulations constantly change. Listeners are encouraged to consult with legal counsel to verify the information provided here remains current. Visit churchlawandtax.com for more insights.